Today's episode was underwritten by the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative. EastEd is a nonprofit group dedicated to increasing equity in schools, communities, and higher ed. For more information, go to www.easted.org. You are listening to Teaching While White, where whiteness intersects with anti-racist teaching and learning. I am Elizabeth Denevi. And I am Jenna Chandler-Ward. More than 80% of teachers in the U.S. are white, but most don't know that their whiteness matters. We want to shine a light on how whiteness impacts education. To illuminate the assumptions that are used as a baseline from which everything is judged, because whiteness is what passes for normal. We want to confront those assumptions so that we can become consciously and intentionally anti-racists for all of our students. You are listening to Teaching While White. Today, we are continuing our conversation about white fragility. In our last episode, Jenna spoke with Robin D'Angelo, author of the recent book, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. Here's Robin defining the term white fragility. It refers to how um, unable most white people are to endure racial stress. That uh, we live in a society in which we are racially insulated and protected uh, and comfortable most of the time. It's very, very rare for us to be outside of our racial comfort zones, and we can generally choose that. So for the average white person, or for many white people, the mere suggestion that being white has meaning will throw us off our racial comfort zones, and white people will take great umbrage at that suggestion. Wow. How can you know anything about me just because I'm white, right? So we push back against that challenge in a range of ways, right? I need you to stop challenging me. It's too uncomfortable for me. A little bit of entitlement in there too, right? I'm entitled to be comfortable, so you've done something wrong. Um, And I will push back against the challenge in any way I can to stop it. So, Elizabeth, when something you said or did is called into question because of race and it feels like a stressful situation, how do you react? I first notice it as a tightness in my body, which can cause me to want to defend myself. What happens for you? I think for a long time, I used to just shut down completely. Then I went through a phase of trying to prove what a good white person I was. Do you have a story you can tell? Yes. I was facilitating a workshop about race with a group of teachers, and a teacher of color questioned my definitions. I immediately felt my face get hot and my palms started to sweat. After trying to rephrase, explain, defend my words, I just kind of gave up and sat down. Rather than working through the discomfort, I gave in to my insecurity and withdrew. So what was going on for you? You know, I I think I felt like my authority was being questioned, like I had no credibility. And instead of keeping the conversation going, I kind of gave up and stopped facilitating. What about you? Me? That's never happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Ah, so many to pick from. Uh, I guess most recently, a colleague of color thought that something I had said was racially offensive. Secretly, I was thinking, she just misunderstood me. 
I tried to hear the impact my words had on her, but deep down, I definitely was still feeling self-righteous. In this episode, part two, we're going to explore white fragility through a number of voices. We'll hear briefly from a few white teachers who've been trying to grapple with it, and then feature interviews with two teachers of color who describe the impact white fragility has on them and their schools. We'll then hear from a few white students who struggle with how to talk about race and wrap up by talking about ways to move from a stance of white fragility to accountability. So let's hear from the white teachers first. Talking about the idea that those conversations around race stop the moment that um, somebody feels like their racism is being equated as being a bad character or a bad person. And so how do we, that's what I've been exploring lately, is how do we separate those two ideas? The idea that, you know, racism equals bad rather than racism equals a kind of pre-programmed unconscious assumption that um, it will become bad if you don't unravel it. And... Um, I think I think that's what I've what I've been working with the kids on, and myself on, the idea that, you know, like oh, I can't be a racist, therefore I can't have this conversation. Thank you. <laughs> like, that's that's what I'm trying to disabuse them of. I have been reflecting on white fragility for a while. Um, I appreciate the term because I think it really captures how I feel sometimes when I'm not quite sure what to do. It's that fear of not knowing the right way to approach something, recognizing that there is a problem, but not fear of offending a person because I don't know the approach that person would like me to use. But if I don't have that information and that knowledge, um, that stops me for fear of offending somebody and doing it in the wrong kind of way. I teach 7th and 8th grade uh, history and government, so the 7th grade is an ancient history course, 8th grade is a U.S. government course, uh, to a school population that is 70% plus uh, Latino, Latina, and most on free and reduced lunch. The first time is when I, I so this is a career change for me. Uh, I came to the education world at 28. I'd never been confronted with this. I'd never discussed it in my, like, Northeast Boston liberal arts school education. I'd never been confronted with it. Uh, so I did not know the term white fragility at that time, but that is 100% what I was feeling. I, I think being the first time you were confronted with the idea of privilege and the idea that like you have an identity as a white person because you don't grow up for the most part identifying as white. Like, uh, like someone was saying, like I identify as Irish. My family has Irish heritage. This all sounds very familiar and, of course, has a huge impact on our students. Agreed. We're going to talk a bit later about how to move through some of these challenges and become better at managing those moments when we feel threatened and defensive. But first, let's dig deeper into the impact white fragility has on our colleagues of color in school. Yes, let's start with Dr. Kim Parker, who I interviewed recently. Kim is an African-American educator. She's currently the Assistant Director of Teacher Training at the Shady Hill School, which is in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Before taking that position, Kim worked in the Cambridge Public High School for five years as an English teacher. Kim created an English class primarily for students of color to get the skills they needed to be moved into an honors class. 
In this part of our conversation, she talks about what it's like when white teachers get defensive. I had two, I used to run this class that was um, a way to detrack ELA classes. Um, and so I took young people of color primarily for a semester, um, did a par- taught parallel skills, so all the skills they would need in an honors class, right? We like practice them and master them. And then I moved them into an honors class and they were fine. And what happened was that um, I would have, I noticed a pattern of young people coming in to my class, kids of color, who were fantastic writers and readers, right? Had these really robust literacy lives. And my question would always be like, why are you here? Like, like you would be easily, you'd be fine in my honors class. Like, you don't really need me in this. And then, so there's a pattern, right? They come from, they're coming from particular teachers, white teachers who um, did not, like, same quality of work was my hunch, but they were not getting the A's and B's. Instead, they were getting C's and B's, or like C's, C pluses. And so when I then began to ask questions, right, I've noticed these patterns, these children are coming from particular teachers, what's going on, then that sort of launched this huge inquiry. Um, it went back to those teachers, right? They um, thought it, it essentially was out of line. It was a witch hunt. I think some of the words, <laughs> there were lots of words that got tossed around during that time. And so what happened then was that I became the problem, right? I'm picking on these teachers. Um, I wasn't being a team player. I was being divisive. Oh, I got there. This was the year of words. Um, And so we never had a conversation about the fact that these kids of color should have been in an honors class, right? And it was all kinds of bias and whatever reasoning that put them in those classes. And so the issues got obscured. And that was really what it's about, right? Like, what is it? Why are white teachers not holding kids of color to the same standards? Why are you not seeing excellence in kids of color the way that all the teachers of color saw it in the kids, right? Like, we knew. We knew, like, as soon as they walked in my door, I was like, oh, you're brilliant, right? Like, why are you here? Um, But because they were black or because they were poor or whatever else, like, they weren't getting the same shake. Did you ever have a conversation with a white teacher directly about all of this or was it all sort of subversive and... Um. It was. It was. And what was really interesting was that people would come to me and say, um, essentially, you should apologize, right? You should apologize to them. Their feelings are hurt. And who's the them? Um, the two teachers who I said, I did call them out and say, this is a pattern, right? Mm-hmm. I would really like some data about the pattern. Can we investigate the pattern? And people didn't want to investigate the pattern. Yeah. So... so what do you wish would have happened in that circumstance? Yeah. Um, one, I wished one, that we could have had a conversation, like a real, like, let's pull the data and sort of look at grades, look at recommendations for honors. Let's look at, I don't know, track records. How have kids done with particular teachers? Like that, I think, is a really good indicator. How do kids of color do with particular teachers? Because we have research that sort of backs all of that up. Um, and what does that mean? Like, we could have used a protocol, really robust protocols, if that's what makes people nervous. But there were, I don't think people want to change. Like, really, ultimately, it's, a, it's just a system. Racism is a system. And you just see kids eaten up by it every single day because we don't have the conversations, right? There are people who are really comfortable and 
the people who, you know, should be, or like, I think what is most frustrating is that for the underserved kids, people aren't fighting for them. And those of us who are fighting for them are the ones who then <laughs> are marked as problematic. Right. It's, it's just crazy. Right. So if you had had a face-to-face conversation and looked at data and, I mean, aren't you essentially pointing at a white person and saying you're a racist? Well, I mean, what is that, intent and impact? And so the data is the data. If we are looking at data that has a persistent sort of pattern of inequity, then what are we supposed to do about it? And that's, but, and that's, I make, make no mistake, we have that, right? That exists now. We could sort of do that in many schools and school districts, but we don't. And I don't know what stops people from doing it. I mean, people of color live that data every single day. And so by not having those conversations, who are we serving? Um, we're definitely not serving kids of color because, I mean, they're, every day they go to school and are underserved or, I don't know, served incorrectly or low performing. It's just a mess. Yeah. It's a mess. I mean, in some ways you could say that the system's actually working, right? The, it is. It's working quite well. Right. Yeah. And that's really awful. It is. It is. And, you know, but I do think that what is powerful is that there are more and more people who are like, oh, I'm going to do something about this or I'm going to make some small change or big change or I don't know, look at my own practices and try to do something different. Yeah. And that even if you are the cause of this in this particular case, you have this pattern you've been raised to have this pattern. So let's look at the the skills and the behavior, and it's not a moral judgment about your character, right? Right. I mean... Right. And then to look at, you know, like, what are the... Like, look at your own personal stories. Like, why is it that we have the beliefs that we believe? Is it... I used to always tell people that I... For every kid I teach, I teach that with the goal that they should be able to gain admittance to where I went to college, right? Like, that's my bar, And I went to a small private liberal arts college in Maine, right? So, okay, they might not ever go there, but if that's my, that's my bar, then I'm going to teach like hell to get them there. And so I always ask, I often tell people like, what would it mean if you taught kids with the expectation that they would go to where, to the place where you went as an undergrad? Because we're not doing that now. Right, right. Other examples of white fragility? I don't know. I, uh, I, I, They're so entwined, I know, into systems. But I'm trying to think of, like, when you've had to deal one-on-one, when you raise a question of race and it turns to tears or to pointing oh, yeah. the finger at you or whatever it is in its different forms. I've sort of, like, actually like blocked out a bunch of it because it was so... Like, these are really... They're traumatic moments because... When I just raised an issue, and I think that particular issue was about um, maybe representation. It was an educational leader, and I asked um, essentially like why more of the people they were promoting weren't people of color, and that essentially the response was essentially I've always been good to you people or something. I'm like yeah. boiling it down yeah. instead of the issue of being like you have this huge platform, right? People are listening to you. What what might it mean for you to elevate the voices of people of color, particularly when you, whenever I look at all of your work, it's all white, right? The kids I teach are not white. 
the people I work with are not white. Like, how do you then work on that? And it just devolved into this whole <laughs> just awful situation where it had nothing to do with what I was trying to say and instead turned into, but I'm doing all, I'm, but look at the work I'm doing. Da -da -da -da. And I, I just sort of disengaged from that because there was nothing... One, it was hard because it was a person I really admired at the time. Um, and two, the constant going back and forth was really difficult because I felt like every time I would re-engage, it was more to make that person feel like, oh, that's okay, right? Like, oh, I know, or oh, you didn't mean it. And so I had to sort of take pull myself back because I didn't want to be that person, right? Like, it's okay to sit with your discomfort. I think what I said was what I said. And I feel like we do have lots of educational leaders out here who are white, who sort of take up all the space when there are lots of people of color who are phenomenal educational leaders who are getting no shine. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? There's plenty of room. Right. So what's the toll when you have a conversation like that or when you're asked to apologize to these women or whatever the situation, what do you feel like? Like you just, I heard you describing feeling like you needed to take care of this white person, right? Yeah. And I think that that's when I knew that I had to like step back and, and you know, protect myself because I think maybe like 10 years ago, I probably would have forgotten myself and worked really hard to make the other person feel great. But I tell you what, I think in working more and more um, with kids of color, right, and being in this really powerful network of educators of color, this is the work, right? To be, I think, to really be engaged in the work in a way that dismantles whiteness. There's just gonna be hurt feelings, right? I'm sorry, you just got, actually, I'm not sorry. <laughs> you're just gonna be, you're just gonna be bad. And so, um, the toll for me is if I choose to engage because I'm really not engaging with shenanigans anymore. Like I can call it out and I can just be like, I'm moving on. I'm going to keep it moving. I'm happy to keep it moving. Mm -hmm. And I might, you know, have some conversations in my group chat um, or with some really good friends to be like, this happened. Um, and we talk about it and we sort of work our way through it. But I'm not letting that take up any more space because, you know, I'm just trying to be free and I just can't. I can't otherwise. I just can't. When you said dismantle whiteness, what do you mean by that? How would we dismantle whiteness? Well, I mean, I think we first need to stop centering it in everything we do, right? My world is not white. Um, my child's world is not white. My students' worlds are not white. And so um, I think also naming anti-blackness for what it is is really powerful, right? Like we... There's so much hate against anything black, right? And in this moment, it's kind of incredible. Um, and so I think like real, I just want like sort of what, what world would I love? I would love it if white educators would really come clean with all of that. Like whatever, I don't know, therapy, excursions, whatever they need to do to really have their come to Jesus moment where they're like, okay, this is white supremacy. This is what I can do to in my, in this moment with my own power, 
um, I was reading some article about sort of like using your privilege to to do something, right? Like that's what I told someone. Um, I was like, who? I have white friends. I do have white friends, um, <laughs> and I said, like you could use one sort of thumbnail of your privilege to do something, and you wouldn't lose anything, right? Like that's that's how that, that's how it's stacked, and I think. If that could happen, right? If white folks could see that if they just do something, because honestly, we are dying out here at rates that are scary, right? And it just doesn't stop. And so until that really happens, I don't see anything else changing. I think my greatest hope is that white educators would um, listen to teachers of color I mean, there are, we're out here, and while our numbers are small and um, getting smaller, we have lots of experiences. Um, and, not, and not every experience is the same also. Um, we are nuanced, and I don't know if lots of people have taken the time to actually listen to the experiences of teachers of color, honestly, because, and also with their experiences with, um, white fragility and just as being educators of color within systems. Um, and so that's that would be my encouragement. Just to realize that everyone has a story. We don't hear a lot from teachers. We don't hear enough from teachers of color. And we also have to be able to listen to our stories without being defensive. Yeah, just listen. And then do some amplifying of um, the people of color, teachers of color, who are doing really, really good work because, I mean, we're in this really nice um, period of time where there's so many teachers of color who are starting to speak up in ways that it's just like, it's so great to be a part of. So I don't know, just tune in, tune in and do some stuff. That was Dr. Kim Parker, who is the Assistant Director of Teacher Training at the Shady Hill School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's sobering to hear just how much white fragility can wreak havoc on people of color. Kim's call for us to listen more and defend less is critical. Let's hear now from Africa Afeni Mills. She's an instructional coach at Better Lesson, which is a professional development organization for teachers. She's also their manager of culturally responsive teaching and learning. I spoke with Africa about her experiences with white fragility in school. I think mainly from my experience, it you know, in thinking about white fragility and how some of the ways that it can play out when it comes to people feeling defensive or shutting down when it comes to talking about racial matters or, you know, racial issues um, or crying, you know, in the face of talking about racial issues. Um, I have seen some of those things, but I think the more I think about it, I feel like the way it plays itself out more so recently I think especially considering our political climate in the country right now, is that there are some folks who I think believe that they're ready to start having these conversations. But then when we actually start to have them, they're really still very much at the surface and they're not really ready to go deep. And so you start to see almost like a secondary defensiveness come out, um, more so than the initial defensiveness. I think the initial defensiveness is something I saw more in my early career. 
And then that secondary defensiveness I'm thinking about is happening a bit more recently. Yes. So then talk to me a little bit about sort of this second line um, yes. piece that comes up. Folks are like, oh yeah, good. I absolutely want to talk about race. Yes. And then, and then what? Then? And then what happens after? I had one of the main examples I thought of is um, when I was work, I was working in a school and and supporting a classroom where they were um, they were implementing readers and writers workshop. And I love Readers and Writers Workshop. I love, you know, it was great to even be there in the classroom, getting to listen to the read-alouds that were taking place for the students. And um, so I was enjoying the read-aloud as well um, as I was supporting the classroom. And one of the books that the teachers read was The Great Gilly Hopkins. Mm -hmm. And I had never read that book before, even though it had come out, I think, around the same time, uh, you know, like Beverly Cleary and Judy Bloom books that I was really familiar with. And so I was like, okay, new book. I never heard of this book before, so I wanted to hear the story as well. And as the teacher was reading the story, I noticed about the main character, I didn't really prefer the main character very much. She was a little girl, a white girl, who was growing up in the foster care system, and she had a lot of anger, which understandable based on her experience. But there was a point in the book at which she had um, a black female teacher. And this teacher was really, you know, really trying to reach out to her, trying to connect with her. And I think she just didn't receive it well. And at one point in the book, she makes a poster about this teacher. And she doesn't actually say the N-word, but she insinuates the N-word. And so this book is being read, imagined, to a group of fifth graders um, in a community that's largely Jewish. Um, some kids of color, not very many. And so when the part comes where the, you know, the main character insinuates the N-word, the kids in the class just kind of look at each other and they're just like, what's happening? Now, I know what's happening and the teacher knows what's happening. And she looks at me and she's like, would you like to explain? And I said, nope, <laughs> I would not like to explain. You. you should explain, right? Because this is a book that you it's chose. Your it's your classroom. This is a book that you chose. Now, I get it. I understand what it's like when you are implementing Readers and Writers Workshop and you're choosing literature to share with your students. And sometimes you read a book that you, you know, that you think, you know, or maybe even you remember that this was a positive book from your past or whatever. But what I thought was interesting was that for me, as I had the conversation with her later, she was initially apologetic. And she was like, you know, I really am sorry. I should not have put you on the spot like that. I didn't remember to read this book over before I read it with the students. And I would love to have your support with um, trying to have this conversation with the students. And so I'm just like, okay, <laughs> that's, that's, I think that's good, right? And, but the thing that kind of sat with me after that conversation was, as a black woman, I don't think I ever would have forgotten that that part of the book was in there. And the fact that she, to me, almost had like, you know, the privilege, it's, I think it's a privilege that comes along with, you know, walking through this world and not, you know, not being a black or brown person, that you can forget that that's, that's something that happens in a children's book, right? And so we did have, I thought, was a really helpful conversation with the students the next day. They had really good questions because they were wondering, you know, like they had been listening to hip hop and they were saying, you know, we hear this word a lot in hip hop. So why is this a bad word? Right. And so basically the example I gave them was that, you know, like when, you know, you have a sibling and they call you stupid, you know that they love you and you know that they don't really mean it. But then when you have a stranger who says that to you, you have no idea what their intention is. And most likely it's probably negative, right, or probably harmful. And so I personally don't choose to use that word, but I'm like, but I know that there are some people who do. And so the kids were like, oh, okay, right? They, they understood that. Um, but interestingly enough, I noticed that her, my relationship with her shifted 
after that time. And she started to become a lot more cold toward me. And so after that initial incident happened with the great Gilly Hopkins book, I was like, we need to talk, right? <laughs> Let's have a conversation with the kids. And we just ended up going really deep with some topics that I think, you know, especially you know, I tried to capitalize on the fact that a lot of the students coming from a Jewish background really, you know, have unfortunately, you know, the history of the Holocaust for no their... Anti-Semitism. Absolutely. And so I remember one of the most powerful moments I had with them was I just started posing like deep questions. I know they were fifth graders, but I'm like, nope, we can have these conversations. We can, yeah, we can support the, you know, support the thinking and just have the conversations. And I remember asking them, I, I told them what reparations were. And I asked them, do you believe that African-Americans deserve reparations? And one little boy was like hardcore, absolutely not. I was not involved in enslavement. Neither was my family. I really don't think that we should have to pay for what other people did. I said, okay. And when um, families who were survivors of the Holocaust received reparations, do you think that that was fair? And he said, definitely. And so I said, what do you think is the difference between those two things? And he just kind of looked at me. And you could see in his mind things starting to shift. So I really, I loved spending time with the students and having those conversations. And I really believe that that's why they had a certain relationship with me. And I think she, she just honestly just stopped speaking to me at one point. And so I don't know if that, you know, that fits the definition of like what traditional white fragility, how that, how that shows up. But it felt like that to me. Africa describes another type of white fragility she's encountered, and it comes in the form of defensiveness. I worked for a school at one point where the administrator noticed that, I mean, I'm, I'm going to talk about the Gifted and Talented program. I have lots of feelings about the existence of, of Gifted and Talented programs, but this program existed at the school, and he noticed that there were, I think, little to no students of color in the Gifted and Talented program. So what he, he happened to be a principal of color, and so he had asked the teachers to go back and reevaluate all of the students in their classes because he said, I, I really don't believe that this is an accurate representation. This, this can't be representative of, you know, of the student population. And wow, the response was so negative so negative. And I think what was tough is that, you know, I'm thinking about this was a principal of color who was working, with, I mean, I think I was going to say we're working with a largely white staff. I think that tends to be true, like looking at the, you know, the racial representation of teachers Absolutely. in the country in general. Um, I think it was a really bold move for him to make. And what was also interesting was looking at how the teachers tried to talk about their frustration about that around me, because there were not very many teachers of color in the school. So they would try to mention it in like this coded language. And I'm so accustomed to coded language. Unfortunately, the way it shows up a lot of times is I, you know, I, um, before I've been working at this school for a long time and we used to have maybe 25% of our student population receiving free and reduced price lunch. And now we have 67% of our students receiving free and reduced price lunch and behaviors are really challenging because those students have a lot of needs. So there's all this coded language that it, immediately when I hear it, I know what people are trying to say. Absolutely. And with, then putting it back on the kids. Right? right. And so it was interesting to see that they wanted to, to a certain extent, I think they were trying to gauge how I was feeling about it. And to, to a certain extent, trying to, you know, I was a new teacher in the building. So trying to see what they could say. And I could tell they weren't saying everything that they felt, but just kind of approximating the fact that they were angry that they had to reevaluate their, you know, how they were referring students and what did that mean about them as teachers that he felt the need to make that request in the first place. And so that I felt like, you know, as far as like thinking about being fragile, I'm like, 
just go ahead and do the reevaluation. Or what do you think? Like you have to think about, well, what, why am I reacting the way that I am? And what does that mean about me? And those are hard things to face. That was Africa Afeni Mills, Manager of Culturally Responsive Teaching and Learning at Better Lesson. Oh, that coded language thing is familiar. I definitely have talked that way before. Yeah, and I still hear it a lot. Urban, at risk, difficult home life. I think what's interesting about our use of coded language is that it's basically a way to avoid talking about race explicitly. You sidestep the possibility that you have a racist viewpoint by using words to mask a race-based issue. I think I sometimes do that with my own students when I'm not sure how to address race with them. At times, I've been afraid to engage with students of color and actually find out what is going on for them. I think I've been afraid that if I asked the question, that I would just get an answer I didn't know how to handle, so I just didn't ask. But think about how powerful it was when Africa was able to talk deeply and openly with students about issues of race. They wanted to have the conversation, and she built a trusting relationship with them when it was clear that she could handle the discussion. So when we're talking about how to manage our own white fragility as teachers, we're talking in a real sense about figuring out deeper ways to connect with our students of color, not to mention our colleagues of color as well. And of course, our white students need a hand with this too, as we heard from Africa. Exactly. Just to get a better sense of this, I sat down with some white middle school students and asked how it felt for them to talk about being white. Are there moments when it's uncomfortable for you to identify as white? I guess when we're talking about it, it's mm. some, it can be sometimes uncomfortable um, because you don't want to say the wrong thing. And saying the wrong thing can result in people like thinking of you like as racist and like you can say things on accident that just come out of your mouth. Like even right now, you have to be careful. Mm. Well, I think that Teachers at my school, especially the past two years, have been better about bringing it up and using it in, like, lessons and doing, like, a lesson on race or a lesson on the N-word. Um, and it's helpful to, like, be able to talk about it openly because then you can go to your teachers and, like, say, oh, I heard the N-word or I, this is my experience, and it's just more comfortable. So I'd, like... I guess I would recommend teachers to be more comfortable in talking about race. Well, in, I don't really talk about race at school because I feel like you should focus on school, but I have heard a lot of racial slurs, mm. especially used by younger kids, which is kind of weird, and I just don't think that's okay. A lot of white kids, like, using... I've heard multiple people using the N-word against... Not against people, but kind of and sometimes I heard these fifth graders I think in the hall and they were like yelling racial slurs at each other or like saying like oh you're the n-word or oh you're gay because that's used as an insult too what do you think it means when white kids use the n-word I feel like it's used it's usually used as an insult when um, someone, or even if it's not supposed to be used as an insult, people still consider it an insult because it's a white person saying it. I just don't want to say the wrong thing. Yeah, is that, is that really sort of, sort of that fear in the back of your head that you're going to say something? Yeah. And what are you scared is going to happen if you say the wrong thing? I don't know, and I know it's not going to come back on me because this is anonymous, 
but I don't know. I've seen white people say the wrong thing, and sometimes it comes back on them, and sometimes it doesn't. Mm. Do you know what makes the difference between if it comes back on you or not? Uh, Who you say it to, I think, Uh and if it's to their face or not. It's so scary to me to think that we're raising another generation of white people who are afraid to talk about race. Right. These kids know race is an issue in the world and even at their school. But when the white adults in their lives can't manage or model conversations about racial identity, it sends them a clear message. The subject should be avoided. So what do students think teachers can do? Well, I think one thing that I could do is just try to talk about it more and make it a topic that isn't like a thing that people don't really want to talk about because they don't want to like offend anyone or like make anyone feel awkward or anything but I think everyone should learn how to just like deal with it and talk about it because it's just like a good thing to know a good skill to know how to what to do like sorry I'm really bad at talking but okay um it's like something that everyone should know how to talk about um well I think teachers should should try to like should try their best to um, talk about it more often and stop, like, being scared to talk about it because they don't want to, like, offend anyone and, like, just treat it as a normal subject. Elizabeth, what she said really gets at the whole reason we wanted to do this podcast in the first place. How can white teachers prepare themselves to have real conversations with their students about race? And how can they build honest, trusting relationships with their colleagues of color? Unfortunately, there is no 10-point plan we can just check off and say we're done. Yeah, I wish. Folks always ask for the plan to fix racism. And the answer is it starts with each one of us being willing to work on ourselves and our own behavior first. Remember, the children are always watching us. Absolutely. They do as we do. So now we're going to suggest some ways to support healthy conversations about race. We're going to point you to some resources where you can learn more about how to do this, including things you can practice. Okay, teachers, this sounds so basic, but just acknowledge that you're white. Remember that race entered the room when you did. Identify yourself as white and other white people as white. Pay attention to your own feelings when racial topics come up. Are you nervous, uncomfortable? Noticing your own racial stress will help you move through conversations with others. And when you feel that stress, will yourself to lean into your discomfort and to name it. Wow, I really feel uncomfortable right now. Don't stay quiet or silent. That's one of the ways white supremacy works. Keeps us in our place, afraid to speak up. Do your best to not equate white with normal. If you hear your students doing it, have a question ready, like, That's interesting. I think I hear you saying that something is normal. Could you say more about that? Or are you thinking of a particular group when you say normal? Too often, normal means just like me. Yeah, give your students opportunities to think about their own racial and ethnic identities. You can incorporate these opportunities into getting to know you exercises and into your curriculum. Try not to avoid conversations about race, but to structure them intentionally so you have a plan. Yeah, don't just wing it. And remember that it's sometimes the little things that help the most. Challenging systemic racism is overwhelming. Interrupting daily racialized comments is doable. 
We just need to keep practicing and holding each other accountable. Thanks for listening to part two of White Fragility. If you missed part one, be sure to go back and listen to Robin D'Angelo, especially her suggestions for repairing conflict across race. We also have a lot more resources on our website, teachingwhilewhite.org, including the suggestions we talked about today and exercises to practice this stuff. You've been listening to Teaching While White. If you like this podcast, please help spread the word by leaving a review at Apple Podcasts. And as we mentioned, check out our website, teachingwhilewhite.org. There you can find really helpful blog posts by teachers, professors, and students from around the country, as well as a trove of other links and resources. That's teachingwhilewhite.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. This program is produced by Elizabeth Genevi and me, Jenna Chandler-Ward. Our editor is Kate Ellis. Sound design and mixing by Lyra Smith. Our theme song was written and performed by Henry Needham. This is Teaching While White. Thanks for listening.